today I want to talk with all of you a little bit about rules. And I'm going to ask you to think about some rules that you need to keep and follow, maybe at school, or maybe you have rules at home that your folks have for you. Because we heard Jesus give some very clear guidelines today about how we should behave. So I'll ask you guys first, can you think of some common rules that we need to follow? Don't, don't break the rules. Don't break the rules. That's right. That's a pretty general one. Good. And, and did I hear don't you? Lie. Don't lie. That's right. That's right. That's good. Good. Any other rules you can think of? Let's check in with Kelly. Don't spill ice cream on the car seats. Don't spill ice cream on the car seats. That is. Rule. Don't spill anything on the carpet. Don't spill anything on the carpet. Yeah, Francis and Kelly. Especially wine. Especially wine. No wine on the carpet. Absolutely. That wasn't Francis talking. That was me. Any white surface. Very good. Yeah, we have to be careful with stuff that stains. Those are those are some pretty significant rules. So um, if you're driving, Hi. of course, adults have rules too. We have 35 miles an hour or 65 miles an hour. And it's important that we not confuse the two, although people seem to all the time where I'm driving. But anyway, um, Jesus gave us a rule too that doesn't change. And it was a long gospel lesson. Did you hear Jesus give a rule that doesn't change? This is not a trick question, but it's a hard in the gospel lesson that we read, Jesus said, do unto others as you would have them do to yeah. you. Exactly. That's right. And what's the name of that rule? Treat others the way you want to be treated? Yes, that's right. It's called the golden rule. And the rule that me and Fritz do not follow. In Jesus' time, there was another rabbi that said, don't do to people what you don't want them to do. But Jesus praised it positively. And so that's a rule that we can follow and that never needs to change. We'll always be on the right track if we can follow that rule. So let's have a little word of prayer and then we'll move on. Dear Jesus, we thank you that you have been clear to us and have put all the rules together by saying, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Help us to follow that rule in all we do, wherever we are. Amen. And thanks for coming up. Thanks for participating, gals. Appreciate it. And by the way, on this little leaflet, there's something you can fill in if you have it to get your own copy of the golden rule. I forgot to mention that. Well, let's set the stage once again for the gospel lesson that we heard today. Remember, Jesus has been on the mountain all night praying, and he calls his disciples, comes down from the mountain to a more level place. That's why Luke's sermon is called the Sermon on the Plain. And then Jesus heals or doctors the multitude of people that came to him. And after all that, Jesus sits down to preach. Last week, we heard Luke's version of the Beatitudes, and I asked you to fasten your seatbelts because we might encounter some turbulence. Part of the turbulence that we had to encounter has to do with the fact that the Greek was pretty complex. 
Today, we need to fasten our seatbelt because the English is pretty plain. Is Jesus really, really expecting that those who want to join the journey on the kingdom of heaven will follow the guidelines that he gives us here? Are we really to love our enemies with a divine love? Well, about seven verses down from today's text, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? It's kind of an ouch. One possible reason, and I won't belabor lots of reasons, but one possible reason to love our enemies is because of what they perhaps have to teach us about ourselves. But the old Adam in us says, I don't care, I'm not loving my enemies, and you can't make me. And that's why Luther says, the old Adam, that cussed part of us, is to be drowned daily in the waters of baptism. And Luther also adds, I find the old wretch is sometimes a pretty good swimmer. It's hard to keep him below those waters of baptism. He keeps poking his head up and being cussed. So instead of saying the devil made me do it, we could maybe say, well, the old Adam made me do it. But then we could say, get him down below the waters of baptism, the promises we made. So it sounds like Jesus is really expecting us to love our enemies. That leaves little wiggle room. But most of us have been trying to wiggle our way out of those words for a long time. The historic peace churches, the Mennonites, the Church of the Brethren, and other historic peace churches, they've been trying to convince us that Jesus really meant what he said in this sermon. They've been trying to teach us that real peace is more than the absence of overt conflict. So far, though, many of us in various denominations have been kind of slow to learn. And as I have thought and thought this week about this unambiguous, most challenging text, one of the words that comes to my mind is commitment. We'll be looking at this text, not from in the weeds like we did last week, but kind of from the balcony. So one of the words that comes to my mind is commitment. Those who are serious, those of us who are serious about helping God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven, need to make a commitment. Now, in our Lutheran theology, we haven't been big on so-called decisions. We differ from some of the denominations, especially that originated here in America, that call on people to decide to choose Jesus as their personal savior. We don't insist on that. What we do instead is daily return to our baptisms, as you heard me say, recalling the promises that were made to us and for us and the promises then that we make ourselves in confirmation or in affirmation of baptism. Daily, Luther says, we put the old Adam in us to death so that the new person can come forth. You know, the old Adam, that same person that St. Paul referred to in that reading from 1 Corinthians. So we Lutherans don't really decide to accept Jesus as our personal savior, although frankly, I'm not gonna quibble with anybody who does. We recall rather what happened in our baptism 
that we die to the old life and rise to the new. And if we are going to remain more fully in that new life, it requires commitment, a thoughtful, concerted, spirit-filled willing, a willing to follow Jesus. And remember that word to follow can also be translated as to imitate, to be conformed to his likeness. So Jesus said, but I say to you that, listen, did you hear that, how he started out? We make a commitment to listen. And as Jesus says in the same sermon, the one who comes to him, hears his words and acts on them, and acts on Jesus' words, is like the one who builds on a solid rock foundation. We all know that scripture. So following after, imitating, doing what Jesus said in these challenging words requires a commitment on our part. Following after these challenging words of Jesus also requires community. We discussed this a little bit at Bible study on Wednesday. It's not intended that we live the kind of life that Jesus describes all by ourselves. In fact, in this lesson today, every you and yours that we hear in that scripture is plural. We can't differentiate that well in English, but those who heard Jesus' original words knew precisely that Jesus was talking about all of you, life in community. You know, community. Remember, like what we had a bit more of before the pandemic? Like what we had a good deal more of face-to-face -face community before the cyber revolution? The kind of community that Alexis de Tocqueville wrote about in the early 1800s when he visited this country and talked about what made, made this country remarkable. Our volunteerism, our forming associations together. He said, we have nothing like this in Europe. This is amazing. So we're not just talking about a community of like-minded people brought together by the same algorithms. We're talking about a sense of something much, much more broad when we talk about community here. And in my own experience, I have found it less of a stretch to think about the unity of all things, the great interconnectedness of community, by beginning to think, of course, in terms of creation. And for me, actually, the world of animals, who, after all, were here before we were, whether you're quoting the first two chapters of Genesis or whether you're quoting Charles Darwin. They were here first. By the way, and I have to say this, that's not to say that plant life should be ignored either. For myself, if I had a few more lives to live, one of them would probably be as a botanist. And for those of you who have not done so, I would urge you to get your hands on a copy of Robin Wall Kimmerer's book, Braiding Sweetgrass, which combines indigenous wisdom and hard science and poetic prose. It is stunning. And you can read one chapter at a time and do just fine. It's a mind expander about community. And so I'm gonna take some time today to tell you some of my favorite animal stories because I think they beautifully illustrate the idea of community and the interconnectedness of all creation. 
One animal story that I particularly enjoyed, I heard just a couple weeks ago on a broadcast interview with Andrea Pitzer. She was uh, talking about the book she had just published called Icebound. And she did her own research up above the Arctic Circle and found herself on a vessel there in the frozen sea, surrounded by any number of walrus out on the ice. One of the ship crew members, who was Russian, brought his accordion out on deck and began playing. And you could actually, in this broadcast interview, they had taped the walrus sounds that would start when the accordion began and then stop when the accordion stopped. The participation was clear and unambiguous. And I found myself wondering, since it was accordion music, were the walrus singing along or were they actually saying in their walrus way, please stop, no more, we've had enough. Some of you probably know those of us who are more traditionally trained musicians have terrible jokes about accordion music. I won't tell them here, but if you want to hear one, I'll tell you at coffee hour. So amazing walrus who responded to the music of an accordion. I doubt they'd ever heard it before. And then there's my personal story when I had been flown into a little grass strip airport in Osceola, Iowa, and I needed to wait for more than half an hour before my ride came to pick me up to the work site. It was a beautiful spring day, and at that time, believe it or not, I had my flute with me. I don't know why, probably because I was going to have to practice to play for something at church. So since I was all by myself there at the Grass Strip Airport and I had my flute with me, I opened up the case and began to play. Now, right there by the road, there was a fenced-in field, and there were probably 25 or 30 Holsteins, you know, the black and white far side cows that were grazing there. And when I started to play my flute, they one after another kind of raised their heads, walked on over, and hung their heads over the fence and listened. There was no question in my mind that they were listening. Now here's my little attempt at humor today. In retrospect, I realized they were an attentive audience, if not an enthusiastic one, which I have subsequently learned is all a preacher can ever expect from a congregation as well. Thank you. That's the best I can do. So one more animal story. And this one is set in England in 1924. Maybe some of you know about this. I, I did not. Industrialization, habitat loss, pollution had just about wiped out the nightingale. And its evening song was seldom heard in the United Kingdom. At the time, there was a renowned cellist named Beatrice Harrison who would love to practice her cello in her garden at her house come evening. And over a period of several weeks that particular spring, as Beatrice was practicing, she realized that the nightingales came to join her and sing along. She was captivated, and she took her story to the BBC, which had been founded only two years earlier. And despite the initial objections of the top dog, whose name was Lord John Reith, the project eventually went ahead. And this was the first time that recording equipment and broadcast equipment had been set up outside in the United Kingdom. So Beatrice Harrison began to play her cello in the twilight. And after a number of tense minutes, the nightingales did, in fact, show up and join in and begin to sing. It was the first time that wildlife sounds had ever been broadcast. And the switchboard at, at the BBC, and yes, it was a switchboard back then, the switchboard lit up 
with people's overjoyed reactions at hearing the song of the nightingales. So much enthusiasm was generated that they held this same joint cello and nightingale concert every spring for the next 12 years until the planes flying overhead for World War II made it impossible. And Lord John Reith, who had been initially reluctant, later commented saying this, and it's a very British way of putting it. He said, John Milton has written that when the nightingales sing, silence was pleased. So in the song of the nightingale, we have broadcast something of the silence which we all need in this busy world and unconsciously crave. So would you not agree with me, please? If critters with flippers and whiskers, critters with four feet and black and white spots, critters with two wings and two legs, if they can all respond to the music made by a single human being, are we not all of us, everything that lives tied together in a stunning matrix that is really beyond our comprehension? I believe that we most effectively follow the teachings of Jesus when we realize we do not follow alone. Finally, in addition to commitment and community, I believe that if we are even going to attempt to follow these teachings of Jesus, there must also be collaboration. We return to our baptisms. We acknowledge that we are so not alone, and we open ourselves up to do that part, just our part of this beautiful work to which all of us are called. In and through the Holy Spirit, we, you and I, we collaborate in bringing the kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. Richard Rohr, you know, my favorite living Franciscan, was writing a commentary on divine diversity and oneness. And he said, God clearly loves diversity. All we need to do is to look at the animal world or the world under the sea or each human being. Who of us looks exactly alike? We are always different. Is there any evidence to show where in all creation that God prefers uniformity? But we constantly confuse uniformity with spiritual unity. The ego is much more comfortable with uniformity. People around us who look like us, who talk like us, and who don't threaten our boundaries. But in the presence of the Trinitarian God, God totally lets go of boundaries for the sake of the other, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each accepts full acceptance by the other. Much earlier, Howard Thurman, right here in San Francisco, had observed one basic discovery was constantly surfacing. Meaningful experiences of unity among peoples were more compelling than anything that divided and separated. And William Sloan Coffin, who was my favorite activist preacher back in my student days, he wrote this, and I think he was writing about the open question, which I love for us to think about. He wrote, there are those who prefer certainty to truth. 
those in the church who put purity of doctrine ahead of integrity of love. And what a distortion of the gospel it is, he writes, to have limited sympathies and unlimited certainties when the very reverse, to have limited certainties but unlimited sympathies is not only more tolerant but far more Christian. For who has known the mind of God? And didn't Paul also insist that if we fail in love, we fail in all things? In our gospel lesson, we heard that daunting imperative from Jesus to love our enemies with all the attendant corollaries that he talked about, clothing, food, goods, so forth. Weeks ago, we heard that daunting subjunctive from St. Paul, let the same mind be in all of you as was in Christ Jesus. How are these things to be done? As I have said before many times here, our Lutheran exploration of sanctification is a bit impoverished. But the Eastern Orthodox Church has a great deal to say, and so do those Methodists who are just down the road. We have so much to learn from each other. I was listening to a presentation by Norman Wiersbach. He teaches at Duke. This was a couple weeks ago. And he said, when we learn to love as God loves, when we learn to love as God loves, our perception is changed because we now encounter and respond to others so as to nurture them in their life. It follows then that God's glory is amplified the more each creature lives into fully the divine work intended for it. We, in turn, give glory to God by participating in God's nurturing and healing ways within the world. The great error is to think that we can see creation properly without also seeing the word, the word that informs and directs it. Put practically, Jesus shows us that the primary task of discipleship is for people to be a healing, nurturing, and reconciling presence in this world. Commitment, community, collaboration. Near the farm where I lived out in the country for almost five years, there was a little church of the brethren. And in front of the church was a little sign that said, continuing the work of Jesus, simply, peacefully, together. And so accordingly, collaborating, I have to thank each and every one of you for what you continue to teach me. And my fervent prayer is that we might continue participating in God's nurturing and healing ways within the world. As our acts of liturgy draw to a conclusion, we know that our work on behalf of the reign of God does not. May we continue in our commitment, gather across creation in community, and collaborate with our own unique work and contributions. And may all that we do be done in love.